0: Hello and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with Sarah Herrenberg. Sarah, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, um, so yeah, my name is Sarah Herrenberg and I am currently a digital marketing analytics manager at a um, company called Hoppen. I have a master's degree in um, applied, applied statistics and data science. Um, as well as several years working in marketing analytics at a couple different tech startups.
0: So why did you decide to get a master's degree?
1: So I have a bachelor's degree in math um, and just have always been really, really um, good at math. It's always been something that really interested me. Um, And while I was getting my bachelor's in mathematics, statistics just kind of stuck out to me the most and it's the class I enjoyed the most and I just kind of wanted to keep diving deeper into it um as well as learn a lot more about data science um as that was something that really interested me and I knew that there was going to be um a lot of job opportunities for me if I had a background in data science.
0: Yes felt like a safe bet probably.
1: (laughs) Yep absolutely.
0: Before we continue I want to tell you about a book I wrote 2 years ago. And it's titled Hired: The Kick in the, you know what, you need to get a job in the 2020s. And here's a little overview, here's my pitch about why it may be interesting to you. They say finding a job is about confidence, but you need to have familiarity with the job process in order to feel that confidence. Hired, my book will give you the tools and strategies to find a job in the 2020s. You'll learn the latest tips and tricks for resumes in the digital age. You'll learn how to structure your LinkedIn profile for maximum social media search optimization, something I go into in the book. And you'll also learn from the experiences of young and seasoned professionals. Through this book, you will gain the confidence you need to find your dream job. The link to buy the book is in the description of this podcast episode, and the ebook is $4.99, and the paperback is $5.99. So uh, it's available on Barnes & Noble, uh, and the link is in the description. So I hope you'll check it out. Buy it for a friend! Buy it for somebody who's struggling in their career. They'll thank you later. Thank you. And now, back to the podcast. Would you recommend that for, like, most people, or what kind of interests or skills would you say uh, somebody would need to get the most out of that kind of uh, education?
1: Yeah, I could not recommend um, getting a master's degree enough. Not only, you know, you learn so much within like a specific subject that you are really interested in, but it's also just a great challenge um, to give yourself. And um, for data science specifically, um, I personally learn a lot better like in a classroom rather than teaching myself, but I do actually see a lot of value if you are a person that can teach yourself really well um, with going that route rather than a master's degree as well. Um, yeah, definitely got to learn a lot hands-on, and I actually also had the added benefit of uh, working full-time in my career already. So I was always able to learn what I learned um, in my night classes and then go to work the next day and implement them in my job, which definitely helped me learn a lot better as I'm a lot more of a applied learning style.
0: And how was balancing school and full-time work?
1: It was definitely difficult, um, but I was really, really lucky to be at a company that um, allowed me to be very flexible and allowed me to work from home at the time, This um, was even before the pandemic. So it was always really nice if I had like a big exam, I was able to work from home and then head to campus later at night for my night class to take it. But definitely took a lot of discipline, lots of studying, lots of sleepless nights, but was definitely worth it.
0: What did you do after you got your master's degree? Uh, what was your next career move?
1: Um, that's when I ended up moving over to a um, marketing analytics manager position so I ended up leaving my company at the time which was a company called G2 based in Chicago um, and went to my current company which is Hopin and kind of just worked with them and started up their whole marketing analytics practice there and I'm still doing that today.
0: How much of what you use in your current job is due to your work experience versus your education?
1: Um, so I would say it's a pretty even split, honestly. Um, the biggest thing I use from my master's degree is doing a lot of, um, time series forecasting and, um, regression models and just other various, um, statistical coding practices. Um, and then of course, like SQL and, um, that kind of stuff. And then from like the, marketing side of things i learned all of that with my work experience i had no you know technical background in marketing so anything that has to do with marketing specific is from um my job experience
0: and what were some of the biggest challenges when you were standing up a marketing analytics organization
1: i'd say the biggest thing is making sure all of the softwares are implemented correctly so that you are getting um correct data and have the most data integrity that you can have especially at startups because usually the mentality at startups is hit the ground running move really fast hyper growth so a lot of softwares are kind of just implemented you know with right out of the box features so that um, you can start getting data as soon as possible but what I've seen um, now in my experience is that Usually, a couple years in, you have to go back and kind of update those um, implementations because you found that the data wasn't coming in 100% correctly, and then that causes a lot of data cleanup and whatnot. So that's always the biggest challenge: is making sure that our data is coming in correctly, and then as well as kind of working around not having a lot of data. Usually, um, with my experience at companies, the company's only been around for a couple years, and so you don't have as much data as you would like, especially to do those more complicated statistical models.
0: And I have a question more generally about the industry, um, but maybe maybe your answer also applies to that. What are some of the business challenges that companies today are facing with data analysis?
1: Yeah, definitely that, the big one of data integrity um, and being able to kind of decipher the different trends within your data so usually a big one is seasonality um, and sometimes it gets hard when you don't have a lot of data or if your data isn't um, the cleanest to be able to decipher the seasonality trends from the growth trends from just the random randomness that a lot of uh, marketing data is subject to.
0: So what are some of the ways that a company can try to deduce the various weights of seasonality versus maybe a tent pole event or something going on in the business?
1: Um there's a lot of, you know, like statistical coding that you can use to kind of um, decompose those trends. One that I have used, um, that I usually like to use, especially when I'm doing a time series forecasting model, just because it's part of the code already, is doing a Holtz Winters method. And then that gives you the individual seasonality growth and like random trend and be able to break it down for you and then, um, apply that to your analysis and your knowledge of whatever data you're, um, analyzing.
0: And do you have any examples of, um, maybe what a business would use this for? Like what kind of a trend they would be looking at?
1: Yeah, so um, where I've used it the most and usually find the most value in is when I'm trying to forecast web traffic. Um, So usually, any company is going to deal with some kind of seasonality with their web traffic, not even just, you know, month to month, but week to week and day to day. Um, Usually certain days, depending on what kind of industry the um, business is in, is going to deal with you know, more, more traffic on certain days than others, more traffic in certain weeks of the month than others. And then of course, um, months in the year. So then when you're trying to forecast it, that can kind of skew the results and make it hard to forecast. And plus, um, for web traffic, if you're doing any different SEO techniques or running certain campaigns, you could have a spike in traffic that, You're not going to see again if that's just a one time campaign um, or like a domain migration that might completely tank traffic and you're never going to see that again. So these methods really help you be able to kind of stabilize those and forecast what that traffic is going to look like going forward a lot better.
0: How would you how how does a time series forecast work?
1: So it works um, by. Using um, using different statistical, so the the model itself um, is able to use time versus whatever um, variable you're trying to forecast and um, determine the relationship between those two. Whereas um, I've seen a lot of companies that I've come into use forecasting methods with linear regression, which You can't really do because with linear regression, both of your variables are supposed to be independent from each other and time can never be an independent variable um, since there's no control over it or anything like that. So you use a time series forecasting model instead so that you can um, factor in time into the analysis.
0: In other words, when you're, company is improving, you need to factor that rate of improvement or uh, or the opposite into the projections that you have for for mo- the relationship between those variables moving forward. So you might become more efficient or less efficient over time. And that uh, adds a factor to how much you're spending and some of the other variables you might be basing that traffic on.
1: Exactly. And then it also helps with goal planning so that you can set your team up for success and have attainable goals for them to reach um without kind of setting them up for failure especially on the sales side
0: do you have any examples of when forecasts and uh don't maybe match up to reality and the risks that that poses for the sales org
1: yeah absolutely um you know especially in you know, the tech startup industry, there's a lot of unforeseen things that you just can't predict, and the data will never show. Um, like, even using current day right now, you know, with in, I'm sure you've seen like in tech, um, especially lately, there's been a lot of layoffs. They're um, just to prepare for, you know, the unknown economic climate that we're in right now. So, that's something that a forecast for the sales team right now for you know new business pipeline and opportunities wasn't going to be able to account for just because no one really foresee all these layoffs and other tech companies happening, especially if it's a B2 B company that you know people just won't be buying software a lot. So no matter how robust your time series forecasting was to project you know pipeline and new business opportunities, it could have never accounted for that. And you're going to see a lot lower numbers than you anticipated.
0: On the topic of, you know, some things that have happened recently that are affecting the tech and business world. I want to ask about how COVID has affected analytics overall.
1: Yeah. So COVID was a big one to skew a lot of data in every industry um, right now. What, essentially does is kind of makes a hole in everyone's data for you know two plus years just because hopefully we'll never see a pandemic like this again so those trends will never repeat and now it is kind of changing the landscape of how our world operates so there's just so many unknowns now that it makes especially data pr- prediction methods within data analysis extremely hard and there's always kind of this unknown factor of how these trends will keep going.
0: Yeah, so even more cause for things like a time series analysis that factors in how behavior has changed over time.
1: Yes, and that's um, something I always like to do in any of my analyses these days is always kind of have that caveat when I'm explaining the data to whoever I am that, hey, like this is what the model is saying right now, but we also have to take into account that we have two plus years of data now that aren't normal, um, have all of, has all this skew to it that it's going to change what the what the output of these models look like. So that is something I always recommend um, when I am like giving results to my data is like, hey, these are the results, but I think we should reforecast this sooner than we probably would have. Let's reforecast this in, you know, two months and see what the output looks then. Just because of, you know, how unnormal this data is that we're using.
0: Thinking about the future of data and analytics, what are some innovations you expect in this industry 10 to 20 years out?
1: Yeah, so I see um, a lot of new tech around data analysis and data science specifically is going to be a lot more common. Um, And a lot more accessible, and I think a lot of that will be more on the the no-code side of things. Like you see a lot of you know no-code website building tech and that sort of thing these days. So I think you're going to see a lot of that, but on the data science side of things, so that you can make data science a lot more accessible to um, more non-technical people.
0: And what would be the value that you would that a user would get in the future from that tool?
1: Um, It would make just data-driven strategy a lot more accessible to everybody and not have to depend on um, having, you know, data scientists and data uh, analysts on the payroll right away. Because that's usually, you know, especially for startups who are just getting out of the gate, it's hard to have a lot of um, employees and big payroll and it takes time to grow. So a lot of the times you see, especially in, you know, tech startups is, Data analysts and data scientists not really being hired till a couple years in, and then someone like me has to come in and clean a lot of stuff up, and you know give people insights that they've never had before that would have been really really useful and help the company at an earlier stage grow a lot faster. So it'll just help companies overall be more efficient um, with making their business decisions rooted in data.
0: So you'd be asking questions about maybe optimizations. What is the best place to put budget and things. I mean, that's a big uh, question in, in marketing organizations right now is like, what is the best way to configure our budget to optimize um, conversion through our funnel? Um, so and we, we would have more automated tools to answer those kinds of questions.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And do you think we'll ever extend to machines doing the purchasing and budgeting all by themselves
1: i don't think so um personally i think there will always be someone on the other end of it to make the final decision on budget it's just i could see maybe for like a really lower spend and like picking out like individual ads and campaigns to put money towards that are a small amount but for the bigger budget thing i think things i feel like there will always be a human making that final decision just because computers can do a lot and automation is fantastic but like we said before there are just some things that computers and data analysis lack and that's that human element and being able to add non-qualitative variables to the analysis
0: Mm -hmm. and do you have any tips for how uh, maybe an analyst can Get better at that. Adding that context to the analysis.
1: Yeah, I think the thing that's helped me the most in my career in that aspect is working with you know non data non technical people and always getting the background um, of who I'm working with and trying to do an analysis for um, in order to just add that add that layer to the analysis that the numbers can't
0: yeah so maybe like asking them what are your goals what is the lever that you're pulling what what questions would you would you ask
1: yeah that's always the big one um the thing that i've noticed early on in my career is that you know most people will come to you for a request or want you to build out a dashboard and tell you like hey these are the exact data points i want on there this is how i want it to look um you know, this is what I want the data to tell me. Um, And this is usually coming from, you know, higher up level people, you know, VPs, decision makers. Um, So the habit I like to get into is once I get the request, book a meeting with them and say like, hey, I got your request. I understand what you want. Just have a few clarifying questions to kind of help me give you the deliverable that will help you the most. And the first goal I always ask, like, what are your goals of this campaign? What are your goals of for you and your team that you want to hit this year? So that can help me pull in some data um, or analysis that they haven't even thought thought about yet because they're not, um, you know, as technical or as into the data as I might be. Um, And always asking, like, you know, where not only like the goals for the specific project, but what are your goals for your team this year? And like once this fiscal year is up, like what are you and your team being measured off of? Um, And that just helps me be able to paint a better story with the data for them and um, just help them at their strategy overall.
0: How do you balance the priorities when the business is looking at the wrong metrics do you ever have to fight to be measured uh, or to measure an organization a different way? And if the organization doesn't want to measure you in the way that you think is the best, would you still make optimizations uh, to optimize the other success metrics?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've always found that, you know, if, if an organiz if you know a team, an organization is like really set and measuring things in a specific way, but I believe that you know there's a different way that would be of more value. Um, how I usually handle those situations is do do it how they asked me to do it, but then also do it how I think it might be better to show them the differences and the advantages in the way that I think might be better, and then that way I know like I've done everything I can on my end to help you know persuade this in the way that I think it should be. And usually nine times out of ten, since I have both options to show them, they go for the one that is better. But if they don't, then I know for my end, like I've done everything for my end. They knew exactly what they could have and we're gonna go with that way. And that way it kind of takes helps me sleep better at night knowing that I'm still doing my job um, and giving them what they want and what they need, but ultimately they are the decision makers at the end of the day, and it, it then becomes their accountability if it doesn't pan out the way that it should have.
0: Yeah, so it seems like stakeholders have control over what the goal is and maybe the general format of the output, but the, uh, the data analysis uh, work has a lot of autonomy as well in the way that you go about the analysis and um, the way you write the query and things like that. So can you talk about some of the um, liberties that you have when you are doing an analysis and some of the constraints with stakeholders?
1: Yeah, um, definitely some of the liberties are just opportunities to educate um, educate people on, you know, the best way to be using data and to be reading metrics and that sort of things, and then be able to kind of use my past experience and bring that into teams to help them optimize things that they, you know, might not have thought of yet. Um, And then definitely constraints, like we kind of talked about, you know, some people are just very set in their ways and doesn't matter what kind of new innovations or even what the data tells them, they're still going to do what they think is best, despite that the data is saying to do something else. And I feel like that's definitely a big challenge about being a data analyst is trying to curb egos, but also make sure that your own ego with being in the data doesn't get in the way too, and, you know, finding compromises and happy mediums between you and um, the true stakeholders of the data.
0: Have you ever delivered a message that the stakeholders didn't want to hear? And how did you manage that.
1: Absolutely. I think that is, um, I think it'd be hard to find a data analyst who hasn't, you know, come across an insight that definitely wasn't going to be favorable for the people receiving the data. Um, But I always like to, if I am delivering them insights that they don't want to hear, that is going to, you know, show them data that isn't going to hit their goals or anything like that. I like to try to provide some kind of insight or avenue that they can take to um, influence the data that they don't like. So for instance, if I'm, you know, giving, you know, a a VP of sales, um, some numbers, some analysis that shows them that they're not going to hit their revenue goal for the year um, at this current pace. then I like to kind of show them like, Hey, you're not going to hit your revenue, but um, I found these other avenues in the data that if we upspend in this channel and you know, focus more on this part of the ICP, like, we can, we can, you know, get this much more incremental data just from those changes alone. And that will get us to our goal or closer to our goal.
0: Providing next steps or recommendations is the probably one of the most effective ways to soften the news if it's less than what they were looking for.
1: Exactly. And that's always the thing, especially with predictive analytics, like, Yes, this is what the numbers say right now, but it doesn't mean that this is 100% what the numbers are going to look like by the time we get to the point um, of where the data is analyzing. Um, So I always like to make sure that even if the data is negative, that we can still find some kind of um, positive insights and um, make sure that everyone is still hopeful and knows that they can either hit their goals or um, influence the data still.
0: So I want to switch to asking about privacy regulations and how they have evolved uh, over time. And what future expectations do you have in this industry?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So definitely data privacy laws are still fairly new. We haven't really, we didn't see, you know, the first data privacy laws until the 1970s and um, that was all in Europe. And that's where, Most of data privacy laws live. Uh, The United States are still pretty late to the game when it comes to uh, data privacy. It is, um, we still don't have any real federal laws for data privacy in the United States. Um, There are a couple to help um, data flow a little bit better in between um, the EU and the United States since they do have a lot stricter and just a lot more data privacy laws. So I definitely foresee in the future, the U.S. having to um, focus a lot more on data privacy laws, especially now that you're seeing all of these data breaches and all of these big companies um, losing a lot of money because of it, just having to pay out uh, civil lawsuits and all that kind of stuff. Because at the end of the day, people's data is their personal information and they are entitled to have that be private and not have that leaked out to people that they don't want it to be.
0: You're expecting stricter laws in the future related to data privacy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, again, like as we see more data breaches and um, just people's data being leaked more and more and um, used without people's consent, you'll see a lot more need for it with um people demanding that their privacy that their data be more private and they have more control over what is done with it
0: and how do you think that'll affect marketing and advertising
1: i think it will make marketing a lot harder for everybody absolutely um you know there won't i think then that's another place where i think there'll be a lot more innovation um And that being more, you know, account-based marketing and wider range of, you know, audience target rather than targeting individuals. Um, Since eventually we will know less about each individual, um, data will be more anonymous. Um, So it'll definitely make everyone's jobs a lot harder. But I think morally, it will it's needed. Just like I said, to protect individuals' data,
0: yeah, and i and I think that first party should be enough. You know what what customers choose to give you should be all that you need for marketing. Absolutely. So back to uh, communicating with stakeholders and operating in that business environment, can you explain the process of translating complex data into a simple message?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So something that I have um, noticed a lot in my career is when you are you know, talking about an al- your analysis, talking about data, it is really, really important to talk in the language of who you are presenting to. So if you're talking about data with another fellow data analyst, you can use a lot more of those technical terms, um, talk a lot more granular about the actual methods and the data. But if you're talking to, you know, VP of sales or someone who isn't as in the weeds with the data as you are day-to-day and doesn't have that technical background um, of how all the data analysis works, it's really important to talk in their language, make sure you are giving the insights in a way that helps them understand, um, doesn't confuse them, and allows them to take action on what you're telling them instead of leaving the meeting just confused and then frustrated that they didn't get anything out of what you just told them.
0: And what are some questions that you can ask to learn that about your stakeholder?
1: Um I think that's like something that's really important for any analyst to do is just to get to know the subject who is requesting the um analysis from you as much as you can, like understand what is their level of familiarity with data. Um, how How do they use data in their day-to-day job? Um, How important are data-driven insights to them? Or are they more of the type that, you know, wants to do what they're going to do and then get the data after? Or if they want data before they make decisions? Um, That will definitely help you with the scope of how you run the analysis, but then also how you talk about the numbers and... Um, what kind of language to use when you're presenting to them.
0: How does your interaction with stakeholders change, let's say, or executives change as you go up in the corporate ladder, let's say? So going from an analyst level to a manager level, how does that relationship change with executives?
1: Um, I wouldn't say the relationship necessarily changes. Um, Definitely, like I said, how I present the data or what kind of data I'm talking to about. so if I'm talking to, you know, a channel stakeholder, say the, you know, director of growth who's running our um, digital campaigns, I'm going to go a lot more granular into the actual, you know, paid data with him to where if I'm talking to the CMO, she's not going to care, She, they are not going to care um, a lot more about the granular data they want high level data they want to know hey how much money did we spend and how much money did we make from these where you know the channel leader might care more about you know impressions and clicks and click-through rates and that stuff kind of stuff
0: and they probably care also a lot about recommendations for moves they can make to uh exactly yeah it's interesting i like how general the job of an analyst is where we can we can talk about it it's like we've had a very similar set of experiences even though we haven't even we haven't overlapped with the companies we've worked at the function is almost a universal kind of problem solving function
1: yes and that's that's one of the reasons why i went into data analytics um there's just so much you know so much you can do in it and you can just be so impactful with numbers. and you know the reason one of the reasons why there's data analysts is because math is not a widely loved subject. Um, so to be able to be that person that loves math, loves the analytics can make people's jobs easier without them really having to get into numbers and just letting them be able to do what they love and do their jobs is really empowering and a really fun part about being a data analyst.
0: Yeah. I I love math as well. I think that's the common bond between people and analytics is statistics and math. Yes. Do you have an example of an analysis you did that impacted the business in a positive way?
1: Yeah, I think, um, kind of going back to goal setting, um, When I was at my first company, something that um, I definitely noticed on the marketing side of things is that um, we weren't really setting goals based off data. We were kind of just picking a number and hoping we would hit it. And I definitely saw how that would negatively impact a lot of marketers because they just were not able to hit that goal no matter what they were doing. It was so unattainable and it would almost make them feel hopeless. Like it doesn't matter what I do. I'm never going to hit my goal. It's like, what's the point? So I was able to go in and um, use some statistical modeling, use that time series forecasting model to better set goals that were attainable. And that definitely helped um, morale across many different teams in the marketing department when they actually had goals that they can attain um, and helped keep them motivated. And of course, helped us make some more money, which is really the goal of any marketing
0: yeah, can you speak to the goals of a marketing organization and the value that it has to the business?
1: Yeah, I think it's you know always important for you know any department, but especially in marketing, to have some kind of goal to work towards to know um, kind of where you should be looking for and what you should be doing and what results you should be driving. And it's just really, really important to ha- to have that focus for your marketing team just because, Marketing is inherently not cheap. It's usually where a majority of the budget in any company goes towards. So in order to make sure that that budget is being used the most efficiently, you need to have focus. You need to have specific goals that you know bring value to the company are being hit.
0: What do you find uh, most interesting in kind of the marketing and tech world? What kind of analytics or analysis or what? Like subject, I guess, is the most interesting to you.
1: Um, for subjects, subject specific, um, definitely SEO. That's kind of how I started and um, the first data that I ever really interacted with within a marketing team, um, and just analyzing how, you know, different marketing um, efforts affected website traffic and how that website traffic then um, impacted the business and influenced revenue and um other aspects of the business it's always the seo side of things especially um that's something that is you know you don't really go to school for so everyone you meet is kind of you know scrappy and self-taught and you meet a lot of really really smart people um there's a lot of innovations just all really cool
0: and fascinating and what are some you said you mentioned revenue what are some other metrics or uh things that you would look at uh on your end as an as a data analyst um or um, analytics uh, manager so what like what metrics would you look at when you're uh looking at the performance of a website through the seo lens
1: yeah so um what specific channels are on your website are driving MQLs and what channels are well first of all what channels are driving people to your website and then which one of those channels then um is driving the most MQLs and then just going down the funnel um again what channels are then converting to of those MQLs are converting to um sales qualified leads and further down the funnel But usually the biggest, the top of any funnel is, especially for a, um, you know, from the digital side of things is how are we driving people to our website? Like what is there, are they coming here organically um, because we're ranking high on um, SERP and driving people or are people coming to us directly because our brand is super strong Um, or are our paid ads doing super well with driving people? And targeting are the right audiences.
0: And can you explain what an MQL is?
1: Yeah, so an MQL is a marketing qualified lead. Um, usually, any company has their own definition of what a marketing qualified lead looks to them, and that's usually just um, you know the what the right people look like that are filling out you know specific specific forms, um, demo request. Um, and just doing those certain actions that qualify them to then be directed to their sales team to try to um, open up an opportunity with.
0: And then how does that MQL turn into a uh, sales lead?
1: Uh, usually you have um, an SDR work it and determine if they um, are the right kind of contact or qualify for um, you know, to be bumped up to talk to an account executive to um, actually buy the product.
0: Do you ever uh, have issues of the MQLs not really being qualified and kind of being mistagged? And how would you recommend a business approach solving that problem?
1: Yeah. um, I mean, there's definitely knowing your um, ICP, your ideal customer profile is super, super important for businesses. so depending on what the product is, like I, I know something that we see most common and B2B tech is, you know, if a lead comes through and they have an email that is, you know, a .edu, that's probably not going to be a qualified person for, you know, our, um, what we're selling because they're probably not really in the market for B2B tech sale or uh, tech software. Um, but you definitely see just, you know, marketing automation tools not set up correctly to where, you know, information either isn't captured about um, a certain contact or anything like that, that might disqualify them from what you're actually targeting and who you as a company know is going to convert better for um, later on in the funnel.
0: It requires kind of taking another look at the models that you use for scoring. And maybe adjusting the weights based on who's actually closing uh, in the process versus who maybe is dropping out of the funnel.
1: Yeah, exactly. And like knowing those, you know, more value leads that end up due um, converting later on the funnel. What kind of actions are they taking before they're, you know, in the full process that they all have, have in common that will help us better predict um, who should qualify for an MQL?
0: Yeah. Well, Sarah, I want to thank you for coming on. This has been an awesome conversation. It flew by for me. So uh, really interesting and and, uh, information packed. So thank you again for coming on.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I had a blast. Awesome. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon.